going. Delighted to be back again today with Glenn. This is episode two of our, our series about the observer. And, uh, and I know Glenn wants people to comment. So if you have comments about what he's saying, that would really help both of us a lot. And of course, it always helps if you subscribe and like, because that gives us a little bit more visibility out there. Um, at the end of our first episode, Glenn, you were talking about zombie observers, and, and you said a, a world in which there were only zombie observers, um, a zombie observer doesn't create an effect. And then you also said that we don't know that an observation happened unless there is an effect that comes out the other side. So your promise at the end of the last episode was that from there, things are kind of going to blow up and then we're going to compress it back down to something that we can get a handle on. And it may take more than one episode. We'll see how things go, but I'm really looking forward to what you have for us today. Okay. Uh, yeah, I appreciate why there wasn't too many comments on the last one because it was rather technical. And um, but I want to start there and return to the the delayed choice quantum eraser and just touch base a little bit more on that one. And then uh, use that as a launch for what comes next. So um, I'd like to share a screen, that's okay. Sure, there you go. Uh, see, share screen. So this is, uh, I suggested two different um, Delayed choice quantum eraser experiments. One was the, the one from uh, Kim uh, et al. And the other one was experimental realization of Wheeler's delayed choice Gedanken experiment. Now, the left side is, is the Kim et al. And the right side is the, the Wheeler experiment. I want to show how that they're actually the same experiment, pretty much. So this is the, the clips from the two different papers. Now I'll go to the next one. You'll notice if I take the beam splitter out of the second Wheeler experiment, it becomes equivalent to the Kim experiment without the, the quantum eraser part in. Now, if I leave the beam splitter in, then the, the Wheeler experiment becomes equivalent to the quantum eraser part of the first one, but without the which way information. So the Kim et al. experiment, which is the one you'll see on all of the YouTube channels and the one which uh, is claimed to have been debunked is the one everyone looks at, but I think maybe the second one would be a more important one to consider. Now there's the same experiment, but if you'll notice in the Wheeler experiment, there's an active element inside the experiment. The beam splitter is actually switched in or out based on a random number generator after the photon has passed the first beam splitter where the paths uh, separate. Uh, the path length is 48 meters, so that's 160 nanoseconds, uh, the, um, the random number generator basically is a coin flip, one, zero, yes, no. 
And depending on that, the beam splitter is switched in and out. And that all happens on the order of a few tens of nanoseconds. It happens very fast. So in the second experiment, it's actually being changed during the flight of the photon. Whereas the first Kim et al. experiment, it's a passive one. We leave both pass pathways open and the photon just decides which one it wants to take. So I think the second one is probably more um, to the point in terms of the quantum eraser because you're actually switching one or the other between which way or quantum eraser. And if you look at the data outputs from the Kim et al, you'll see the two, two different detectors give the kind of that interference pattern. But if you have the which way detectors, you get just a standard single slit diffraction kind of mushed out pattern. Now, if you look at the second one, um, the Wheeler experiment, you see the same effect between the two detectors as you're changing the length and causing the interference pattern to happen. Each detector is 180 degrees out or pi radians out of the other one, which is exactly what you see in the first one. But if you add them together, you get the flat pattern. And I know that was sort of a point that was considered relevant to a criticism, but you have yes, to remember- that, that was Sabine Hassenfelder's criticism. Right. But you have to remember these experiments are a single photon at a time coming in. They're not a wave coming in. So if you have N photons per second coming into the experiment, the detectors better add up to N photons per second. So it's not a mystery that the sum of the two detectors is gonna be a constant value. Um, but that also points to the fact that since this is a single photon at a time, you have to treat the photon as a particle, not as a wave, which gets you into quantum electrodynamics, which is a completely different theoretical, you know, way of looking at things rather than the, your first year physics interference. So what, the point I was trying to bring up is if you think in terms of Duhame's uh, hypothesis testing, both of these experiments share the same underlying hypothesis, both of them share the same. So a test of a hypothesis test is actually testing QED. It's actually testing the coherence analysis that both of them test. There's a whole stack of stuff. So any experiment like this, which is using the same underlying theory um, is also subject to criticism. I'm kind of, I'm, I'm losing <laughs> the point is that that it's not just one hypothesis you're testing, but you're testing whether the coherence theory works, you're testing if QED is a valid theory of, of photons treated as particles. So if you're gonna criticize one experiment, you're sort of careful that you're not in the process of criticizing all the rest. Um, I'll leave that to the big guns in physics to debate this. I'm not gonna take on Sabina on this one. <laughs> but. The flip side is also true, is that if you think you have a solution for uh, one of these experiments, then it better be an solution for all the other experiments which share the same sub-hypothesis, sub-assumptions um, kind of analysis. 
Well, so the the bottom line is you feel that there is something to the um, delayed choice quantum yes. eraser experiment, regardless of which way it's happening, that, that there is something that shows that the future state of the, the future state or position of the particle actually affects the the past state or position of the particle. Would that be right. it? Yeah, because as in, in the, the Wheeler version, as the photon comes into the beam splitter, it picks one path or the other. But the experiment is actually switched up while the photon's in flight. So whatever happens at the detector side must be influencing what happened, which, you know, which direction the photon came in later. Um, so that's kind of, how do you deal with that question? And then I'm also, I'm gonna leave that, and I'll come back to it. And then step up to, I talked about um, the strong free will theorem and the free will theorem, which was an earlier version and what it actually says. And that's kind of a, there's no consensus, I think exactly what it means other than everyone agrees that it doesn't prove that free will exists. It doesn't, but it doesn't. It doesn't. But what it actually says, uh, let's go backwards. If we go back to the original experiment here on the left, the Kim one, it's a, this is a passive experiment. And so the detectors are all active. The photon comes in from the left and all possible pathways are available to the photon. What the experiment detector in the coincidence circuit reports in a sense is what the photon decided to show you. Um, the second, the Wheeler experiment, you're sort of forcing a change during actively change, but the first one is a perfectly passive one. So whatever happens, the photon decided to do it. You can't say that the quantum eraser part of this experiment affected the diffraction pattern because it was just there already. So this is how I kind of look at this, the free will theorem is that he's trying to say is that in some experiments, it's almost as if the photon or the electron or whatever it is has actually decided what it's going to show you. You didn't really, you know, as an observer, make any difference to the experiment. But it all gets a bit fuzzy. And well, yeah, I would say, I mean, you're using the word decide in a decidedly unique way. <laughs> you say the photon is deciding what it's going to show you. And, and that, that takes me back to that conversation, Chris Fields and Michael Levin, when they're talking about how they're working with Carl Friston and some other physicists to come up with a physics in which there is some sort of a cognition or agency all the way down to the particle level. Yeah, well, we're gonna get there. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, there's better people than me have analyzed the strong free will theorem, but that's what I've intuitively I pick up from it is what John Conway is saying, and by the choice of the, the name for the theorem, is he said, if we 
grant that the observers have free choice to decide what experiment they're going to do, then we kind of have to use the same word decide when we talk about what the quantum particle decides to do. We're sort of, the language crosses over. But getting, getting on with it, uh, as a note to your viewers, the best YouTube um, discussion of the strong free will theorem that I've come across is the one I've linked to, which is cracking a nutshell. And it's uh, the question, does electrons have free will? And uh, the host there, Dolores, I think does as good a job as anybody I've seen going through how it, how it works and the implications of it. Beyond that, you can go and Google, you'll find some much more technical discussions out there. It's clear that better minds than me disagree. So I'm not gonna try and say that my opinion is better. But with age, something has um, uh, I've come around, noticed that in all of these experiments that we, we have the quantum problems and the observer, the observer is always kind of a cutout, cardboard cutout. We never talk about what the observer is. We never include the observer, the physics of the observer into um, the, the, the question of, you know, the paradoxes to begin with. Now, there is a very similar situation in the classical realm, which is kind of inspired me to think the way I do, and that is um, Maxwell's demon. Get there. Okay. Maxwell's demon, I'm sure most people are familiar with the experiment. You have two boxes. We have a box with a barrier with a gate inside of it. And the demon watches the molecules bouncing around in, in the two boxes. And when a fast one comes towards the gate, it will let it through, like on the, the image here on the left, to the right side. And if it senses a slow, the blue uh, molecule coming towards the gate, it will open it up and let it flow to the left side. So over time, the demon, by watching the molecules bounce around in the boxes and opening the door at just the right moment, can gradually get all of the slow ones to the left, and or not all, but more and more of the fast ones, higher energy ones, on the right side of the box. Now, this would seem to contradict the second law of thermodynamics, that somehow we've divided, we've created a hot and cold reservoirs now, which we can extract energy from. So we sort of gotten energy for free by this demon just watching and opening and closing the gates. And the Maxwell's demon is probably a century and a half old um, paradox. There's been a lot of proposed solutions for it, but I got fascinated by it, especially after I got acquainted with Landauer's principle. But it finally sunk in that the reason that this is a paradox or um, seeming contradiction is that we never include the demon into the physics of the, the problem. Well, that was the first thing that occurred to me. 
that the, uh, the demon is expending energy opening and closing the door. Yeah, so <laughs> yeah, so you you can't go in and treat the demon as if it's this disembodied spirit that has no physicality, and so of course it's going <laughs> to you're going to have problems having a coherent answer. Um, you have to give the demon of flesh and and blood, uh, you know, physicality, and then include it along with the rest of the experiment. There's been countless attempts over the generations to include the demon into the experiment, but every time you do, it's always a special case. There's, uh, I don't know, there's probably dozens of different experiments that have created a Maxwell's demon and had it um, in the experimental on the lab bench and run experiments, but they're all special cases. You can always say, well, what you've done theoretically or experimentally is just a special case. It doesn't answer the, the general case. The, um, yeah, one of the things, they have transistors now that will allow one electron through at a time. And so there's Maxwell's demon experiments that are actually use that kind of system as the gate. And so you really can let one electron through back and forth from one reservoir to another. That's, that's done doable. But how do you get away from this um, hurdle that everything you do experimentally is all, also, always a special case? And that's where Landauer's principle came in because he took a look at it from the point of view of computation alone. And what he said, pointed was that it's just the computational process is where you, you save the second law of thermodynamics. It's irrelevant what kind of physical system instantiates the computational process, but it's the computational process alone. So what he offered then is a theoretical way out of the special case problem, because all the special cases can now be encapsulated in an abstract computational model. And the computational model alone now is sufficient to solve the Maxwell's demon problem. So- Well, is that, that, is that where it comes to the place where the computation requires an acquisition of, in, conti continuing acquisition of information and at some point, that information has to be offloaded. Right. So it, it's, it's complicated and I want to try and touch base on it again. But the argument is whatever physical system instantiates the computational process, it will always end up satisfying the second law of thermodynamics in one way or another. So you can land our principle as stated, it's not the final solution as some people propose it, but it certainly is the gateway to thinking about how to solve it. But now you're looking at this demon. The demon has the ability to observe the quantum particles that's bouncing around. It has the ability to make choices. You know, it, computation, again, I'm, I'm always using in the sense a sequence of choices based on a set of rules. So by looking at the quantum things, it makes an observation, it makes a sequence of choices based by a set of rules, 
and then it acts back on the system by affecting the gate, whatever the gate might be, opening and closing the gate. So if you notice, the daemon is actually uh, an input, think about it, output structure. And that's exactly what Friston's model in, in abstract outline form is, is an input, uh, some kind of decision-making process, which is inside of a boundary, which isolates it and an output. So again, if we go back to uh, our original Kim and Al experiment, and we're sitting back in our entanglement playground, and we're watching the photons come in, only some of them actually generate a detection, which then is recorded. A lot of photons come in, they miss the detectors, they go off and you know who knows where they go. So simply photons simply going out and being absorbed into a barrier or some other physical structure, it's wave function decoheres and tangles. That doesn't count as an observation. And a simple, and there's experiments like the photoelectric effect where you have a, a photon of light comes in, it becomes absorbed on some cathode surface at the atomic level, you have a, uh, an entangled state, which is now has enough energy for an electron to bounce out. So here's a case where quantum effect generates a quantum effect. So there's input and output, but there's no decision-making process happening during the photoelectric. So again, it doesn't really function as an observer. It seems to be only the times as we're sitting here in our playground watching things happen, that something counts as an observation is if there's some kind of sequence of choices happening, some decision process happening between input and output. So kind of ask yourself, what, who is it or what is the observer? Was it the bell in you know, the case when it was rang? Was it the coincident circuit, you know, our stranger sitting in the corner? Was it the grad student picking up the thumb drive and opening it in Excel? And what it strikes to me is, is the process of observation is, is a whole link of things. And the observer always seems to start looking like Maxwell's demon. You have some kind of observation where the quantum system creates a, an effect internal system. There's a sequence of choices then there's an act back on and that goes out. So I'm gonna take a deep breath now. And yeah, okay. That... So what I'm trying to say is the observer, if you consider it in quantum mechanics, looks, could be our Maxwell's demon. Uh, so let's go forward. So I'm just throwing that out as a proposal for other people to think about and, and argue about. Well, is, no, this is, is a, Max, a well. Hold on a second. Is Maxwell's demon just a a theoretical construct for um trying to deal with this problem of how entropy works, or is there the suggestion that there is actually something like Maxwell's demon that operates in the world 
to decrease entropy? It started out as a thought experiment, as a possible contradiction of some of the interpretations of, quantum, of, of the second law of thermodynamics going back to late 1800s. So like I say, we're, we're going on a century and a half now since Maxwell first proposed it. So it's always been that funny question, is it possible to uh, get around the second law of thermodynamics by some clever uh, demon acting on, on a system? And it's, 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 there's never been a, a good put down to say, no, you can't do that. A nice, comprehensive, satisfactory, one size fits all. But I, th I think we're there with Landauer's principle. Okay, so now we're... <clears throat> so now we're back to, um, this is from Cracking the Nutshell and her um, take on the strong free will theorem. And she talked about choices going forward and, and she posted this nice diagram of, of now is, is, is the middle. And each time you make a choice, you, you're branching possible future paths. So this is, is meant to, to show all of the possible paths from now going into the future. And each, each node, each, oh, wait a second, I'm not sharing. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, you are, no, it's, okay. it's good. I just, yeah. I forgot. Yeah, so each little node is, is a point when a choice is made of possible future paths. And so as you go into the future, you take one thread so the diagram is all possible paths, but in reality, we only take one of these threads forward in from now into the future. One of the things to think about when we've talked about the free choice, and I've suggested another way to look at it is, is to think in terms of causal disconnected or causal independence, that you reach a point where what happens next is is not determined specifically from the past. Another way to think about it, I think I, I see from this diagram, is that when each point happens in space and time or whatever, when a choice becomes possible, what you're saying is that there's multiple pathways into the future, which are all still consistent with the past history of the universe. And so I think that's a nicer, less, loaded way to, and then to say free choice. Think about quantum mechanics is about probabilities. There's moments when a choice happens, when, when a, the branching, and when I say a choice, I'm usually I'm kind of thinking in terms of the branch point in, a, in this walk towards the future. In quantum mechanics, what happens next is just given by a probabilities. You can, do the calculations, you say, well, there's a 20% probability that this will happen. So a quantum mechanical process is a random process. So each point in, as you go forward, you kind of take a random walk into the future. Um, and that's okay. But quantum mechanics, it, we're happy with the notion that there's multiple pathways into the future, which are still consistent with the past history of the universe. And we have, we're okay with that when we think of quantum mechanics. 
if you think in terms of computation, and I'm thinking that if you take computation as fundamental, then what you're saying is each point where you can multiple pathways become possible, you can actually pick one based on a set of rules. So a computation then is a, a rule-driven uh, directed pathway into the future. So yeah, I need to take a breath here. Ask you if you have well, any questions. Yeah, when, when, that, uh, when you just said that, that at each point where multiple pathways become possible, you can um, you can choose one or take one based on a set of rules. Right. And so, uh, that made me think about, well, for, first it makes me think about the difference between rules and principles. I'm thinking that there is so much variability possible because these choices are really principles and not rules. That's my own bias. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe maybe I'm adding too much human in here to anthropomorphizing, but, but let, let's keep going. Okay. Well, at this point, I start thinking, um, Wolfgang Smith talked about this, and I think other, um, even some of your other conversational partners have talked about it. Uh, Jonathan Peugeot has mentioned it. That there's a sense of time as uh, the mathematical space-time, which is continuous. But then there's also this notion of time, which is punctuated by choices or events. So you can think of a mathematical continuous space in physics, but you can also look at this diagram and think each node where possible futures now be, you know, options become possible is, is like a clock tick in that other sense of time. And I can't remember, Wolfgang said had a word for it, but I, I know other people have picked up on this. And this leads well, that, to- that's totally a Wolfram thing too. Yes, it is a Wolfram thing. And it's, and it's telling you something about the structure of space-time. You can't have a branching into multiple pathways into the future if space-time is perfectly continuous. There has to be some kind of discontinuity in, in structure space-time or something so that multiple pathways can exist. Um, and I've, I've talked about it this before, because if you start from the future and you look at the past and you, you look at the timelines as you get closer and closer to that discontinuity point, whatever continuous function you try and create from past to future breaks down at that, that singularity point. So it's suggesting that there's some aspect to space and time, which is more discrete, you know, in, the, in Zeno's paradox of the arrow in flight kind of thinking. And so that leads a lot of people to wonder about, the, you know, what's discrete, is space discrete or is time discrete? And I've, I've seen a lot of different arguments and, and speculation on these pathways and I'm not gonna go there. But I think the 
intuition, the sense that something is happening here is, is valid. And it comes back to the observer. What if you, how the observer works is sort of demanding that you ask these kind of questions. And then this gets me into the, you're familiar with the anthropic principle in the sciences? Yes. I left it and, and I'm sure. Can I, let me, let all, me put it in my own words and see if I've got it go, right. Go ahead. The anthropic principle is that while some people say, well, our world is so finely tuned for life because there are all these constants that are exactly have to be almost exactly perfect. Otherwise, the universe would have never got started or it would have collapsed. But then other people say, well, that's only because we are here. So because we're here, we are, of course, in the universe where all the constants work in our in our favor. Is that a correct reading yeah. of the anthropic principle? Well, yeah. Initially, the anthropic principle was, you know, the sun's age or the Earth's distance from the sun, the moon's a certain mass, you know, the, the tilt of the Earth. In fact, there's all these things in nature that have to be just perfect for biological life as we know it to exist. So that's where it sort of started. But as you deep dive into physics, it, it sort of morphs and they usually refer to it as the problem of fine tuning. But it's the same thing that there's about two dozen or so constants in physics from the gravitational constant to the fine structure constant to, that if they are off by just a few percent, then life as we know it can't exist. And they get out of this conundrum by just saying, well, we have multiple universes. Ours just happens to be the one universe where the laws of physics are just right. So we're here, but it's, it's nothing special because there's countless billions of other galaxies or universes separate from ours where the laws of physics are all different. And so, you know, no big deal. What I'm suggesting is we should replace the anthropic principle with the question, why is the observer here? Now that is one you can't run away from because the observer is essential in the Wheeler sense for any, gal any universe to exist, it has to have an observer. So any universe in that sense that's going to exist has to have some kind of observer either external or internal. If the, the observer, which is making all the observations, which makes all the information as, as the, the term is, come into being have physicality, well, if it's external, then it's sort of a godlike figure, which I don't think anything but he likes. The only alternative is now is that the universe has to be capable of being its own observer. And I think there's a, a nice, this is uh, uh, John Wheeler's diagram, whereas um, the universe becomes its own. So yeah, I'm thinking you've probably seen this. So this is- I have uh, not seen this before. <laughs> okay. So I think it's important to replace the anthropic principle, which is, sort of human centered, it's centered on us. And 
it gets thrown out because people, well, that's just religious, you know, because a lot of um, religious spiritual arguments are made for God and because the universe is just perfect for us. So somebody must have made it that way. Um, so that sort of gets. Well, so let me, let me read this out loud um, in case we decide to make this podcast. Okay. So John Wheeler's diagram of the universe as a self-excited circuit. Starting small, which is the thin part of the U at the upper right, the universe grows. Mm -hmm. That's the loop of the U. And in time, gives rise to observer participancy, which is the, the thicker part of the U on the left-hand side, which in turn imparts tangible reality to even the earliest moments of the universe. Compare this notion with the delayed choice experiment of figure two. So, yeah, I just yeah, I stole this from uh, someplace on the web. So, yeah. so are you? You're only interested in the in the uh, image and not in the language there, because that language indicates that the delayed choice quantum experiment, delayed choice eraser. Yeah, I don't. I don't want to touch that one. <laughs> okay. There. Yeah, I mean, I thought there was pretty big implications there. Yeah, but it, it gets back into: um, is the universe there because we we look at it? You know, Einstein asked, "Is the moon there? If we still there? If we don't look at it?" Um, then well, he you thought that keep... was ridiculous, though, right? I know, but uh, there are people. There are philosophical or tangents, which suggest that the universe is what we as observers make it, that, uh, that they're, um, can't, I'm lost for words, but I, I know you've, you've encountered this before. Yes, yes, and, and the, it always makes me at a loss for words when they start talking like that. <laughs> but this kind of thinking is what logically leads you there. Um, is that the, we as observers make the universe what it is by our observations. And I don't like that. Most people don't like it. But if you start with John Wheeler's thinking, it's kind of like, well, yeah, that's where you're going to end up if you take his um, idea that observers have to be there to make reality happen. I would tend to say that uh, the quantum world reality happens whether we're there to observe it or not. And observers are a second layer. Um, that's one possibility that, that the fact that observers are here is, uh, is a second layer to reality. That well, is, let's just talk about this implication for a second because um, Let's think about the idea of layers of observers, not, not just an observer at the top. I mean, this mm -hmm. picture of Wheeler's is as though the, the, the unstated goal of the universe was to come to a place where there would be observers that could observe it. Mm -hmm. um, but, but if you think in terms instead of, of layers of observers, starting at the very lowest layer and go back to this idea of Chris Fields and um, Michael Levin and Carl Friston, that there is some sort of agency or 
or decision making or cognition or something going on even at the smallest particle level mm -hmm. couldn't there be some way in which these different levels of quantum reality and then atomic reality and then molecular reality that these all have some sort of observational capability on the layer below so that which is kind of what i think that wolf wolfgang smith is implying in his vertical uh, causation. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think that Wolfgang Smith is saying that God is outside the universe observing everything and bringing mm -hmm. everything into the reality at every moment. I think he's talking about reality being knit together. Mm -hmm. Yes, God is essential in this process because the scripture says that in him all things knit together. <laughs> But, but that it's taking place at all these various levels all the way up. Well, you can get there if you keep playing the, the game abstractly to, to the, uh, the notion of levels in observation or consciousness. What maybe you're asking is not levels of observation, but levels of consciousness. Well, does we can well, get there. Right, so we will get hold there. on a second. So you're saying that observation does not require consciousness. I'm saying um, observation does require a concept of consciousness. But what I'm afraid is we've always used that term in reference to us as, you know, big agents. Uh -huh. If we're not used to thinking of it in terms of just simply abstract um, um, mathematical stripped down view. So whenever an observer makes an observation, it has to entangle itself with whatever quantum world is around it. But it can entangle itself with everything. There's only certain things that it can. So consciousness in its probably most stripped down sense is simply the ability to be aware and interact with the world around you at whatever level of reality you're at. And oftentimes the nature of things, you can only be, a system can only be conscious of so many things. So there's a certain, I call it universe of awareness or universe of consciousness is those things in the external world that an observer can interact and engage with and entangle with so that it can make a measurement. Remember all measurement at the quantum mechanical level is entanglement. And entanglement implies that there's some connection physical, there's a law, there's a, some, you know, force, whatever. So there's a, a physical connection. Sometimes it's there, sometimes there's no connection and no entanglement is possible. Well, in the way that you're describing that, I get a full-blown picture in my head, for example, of a plant or a tree that in some sense is making measurements with yes. when the light comes into the plant and then the plant is using the photosynthesis natural forces to, um, to bring life and, and uh, nourishment to the plant and you know, green and all that kind of stuff. Those are all measurements. Yeah. So it, you could say- and, and they're entangled. Yeah, well, at the level every, you know, light sensing, it, it senses sun, sunlight. So at some level, 
there's a some molecule chlorophyll or something which is sensing the light there's a quantum mechanical uh, interaction where the photon hits some you know uh, optic center in in the protein structure and creates a ripple effect that now goes out through the whole structure of the uh, it's uh, plants are aware of the temperature, probably night and day, um, moisture content, heat. So that's its universe of awareness. That is the things that you can say a plant is conscious of, because that is the things that can it provides its data input, so to speak. So, so what we're getting to right here. This is very, very important because what we're getting to right here is a kind of attention I know that sounds weird I mean, probably sounds weird to you but but um, there's been a lot of talk about attention lately <clears throat> especially since McGilchrist and Peterson have been talking um, because the left and right hemispheres of the brain produce two different kinds of attention the the right hemisphere produces a kind of open awareness of everything and the left hemisphere is a very targeted awareness but it it kind of sounds as though um well and so um this idea of attention fits together with how when jonathan pejot talks about how the whole world fits together, you, you can put this whole idea of attention together with telos, because telos says that things are growing towards a certain uh, perfect, well, words fail here, but things are growing towards a certain form or a certain identity. And if you think about Michael Levin and the cells that are making an arm and how do the how do they know when to stop? They know when to stop when the arm looks the way the arm is supposed to look. But that supposed to is the key right there. Mm -hmm. How do those cells know how the arm is supposed to look? And I think it's because they're paying a certain kind of attention and that attention has some awareness of, mm -hmm. of some form or identity that we cannot see from our side, but somehow those cells can see that. And so, and Jonathan Peugeot often talks about attention as being a form of worship. So I think this whole idea of goals and telos and completion and attention and worship, they all fit together somehow. I, I, I've been wanting to sit down and write it out somehow, but it, it's just, at this point, it's a big jumble in my head. But, but when you get to this place where you say all measurement is entanglement, what you're really saying is that entanglement is relationship. The measurement creates a relationship with what's being measured. Did I go too I far say, off the beam? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, your your remarks sort of spawned this uh, a couple observations. Is is 
what I'm suggesting is one of the central features of what the observer has to be is the notion of computation. Computation is a purely classical uh, process. It has to be, it's a, it's a strongly emergent, it's an epiphenomena, however you want to put it. Whatever the observer is, it's not quantum mechanical. It sits on top of quantum mechanics and it behaves in a, by a completely different set of rules. All computational systems are composite. A single atom by itself can't be display computation. A single transistor by itself isn't a computer. But if you stack a bunch of transistors together in the right order, now you have a system capable of computation. So one of the things I keep coming back to in my own speculations is that whatever computation is, it's a, an emergent phenomena, which means it's a group phenomena, which means it's a epiphenomena of, of a collective collection of something else. So whatever is going to be the observer, it has to be a collective system. It can't be a single item. So the smallest systems, collective systems, composite systems capable of computation, those are the smallest units capable of, of for which the word consciousness would apply. So I think Michael Levin and Chris Fields, they were thinking in terms of that consciousness maybe extends all the way down to atoms and electrons. What I'm suggesting is if you focus on the observer and really try to understand what this thing is, you realize it has to be composite. So consciousness ends at the smallest structure, composite structure capable of co uh, computation. Again, I'm using it in an abstract sense, a sequence of choices based on a set of rules. Okay, let, let me just repeat this so I get this down. Consciousness ends at the smallest set of... Do you remember what you said? Composite structure. The smallest composite structure capable of computation. Right. Now, if you, you start thinking along these lines, whatever a computational system is, it has to be causally disconnected from the underlying quantum world that makes up all of its underlying parts. Um, again, part of emergence is there's the presence of a boundary. There has to be an inside and outside. Um, weak emergence, the boundary is artificially imposed like uh, in thermodynamics where the cylinder and the piston Strong emergence implies the boundary is self-created um, so that you can have autonomy. You can't have self-awareness without a boundary. And I, I'll go back to this real quick. The, 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 the observer in this has to be autonomous. It has to have a way of disconnecting itself from the universe as a whole before it can become an observer. Again, I think Carl Friston's model uh, is, is capturing this notion. Uh, 
inside and outside a boundary and this source of a, a kind of a computational process goes on inside. Can, so, can I ask you a really quick question here? Yes. You said you can't have self-awareness without a boundary. That immediately made me think of Sharon Glotzer's experiment with the particles, uh -huh. where she kept reducing the amount of space available to the particles. And she kept making a tighter and tighter boundary. Mm -hmm. And at a certain point, the particles self-organized into a crystalline structure. Mm -hmm. so In another part of the video, when she talks about those particles and the way that they organize, she said they're organizing based on, um, I'm, I'm not using her language probably, but this is how I understood it based on finding the most amount of freedom for each particle within whatever structure that, that they're in. And so this crystalline structure gives the most space or the most freedom to each particle, even though the, the, as the space gets constricted, it has to choose a structure, choose. <laughs> it has to come into a structure that gives each particle the most space or the mm -hmm. most freedom. That sounds very much like what you're talking about, that how do these particles know, <laughs> quote, unquote, um, how much space they have and okay. well, why does a, it matter? That's, a, that's an excellent question. Um, in her, her case, the boundaries artificially imposed as part of the computer model. Yeah. So what you're looking at is weak emergence, and that does give rise to spontaneous ordering, crystal-like structures, and that is correct. But the structures that spontaneously appear are not capable of computation. And I think there's another researcher, I think the name is Jeremy England. Hopefully I'm right. He's done a lot of work with um, systems that are far from equilibrium. And I guess, what does they call it? Self-organized criticality, I think is the word. And there again, when you force systems way out of equilibrium, you will see spontaneous ordered patterns appear. And he's also suggested that as a possible explanation for origins of life. Where, and you can get into chaos and um, strange attractors and there's all sorts of ordered patterns you can see appear. Mandelbrot said, I think we've talked about that in the past, but none of these ordered patterns that arise from these other processes are capable of computation. So I think if you take, again, computation as something fundamental, then that will automatically exclude a lot of these potential choices that people have put out there for origins of life because a lot of them, they don't have the interaction. Once the crystalline structure forms, yes, it's ordered, but it's not capable of changing shape in some way based on a set of rules in response to an outside input. Um, Self-organized criticality patterns, they don't persist long enough in time to enable a calculation or a computation to happen. Again, 
computation or implies some kind of very stable system that can move between stable states based on rules or the rules tell you how the state changes, but why it changes is the input from the observations. And I'll probably come back to this scenario again. Does that help answer that speculation? Yes. Yeah, so. Yes, I was, I was down in the weeds of weak emergence, but it's actually a strong emergence. Strong emergence. Anytime you say the boundary is self-created, self-sustained, you talk about self-organizing, you're immediately talking about strong emergence. Now, getting back to the choices thing, um, I thought I'd save this to the end, but it's kind of a good spot to, spot to bring it in. Again, if you take computation as a fundamental basis for describing the observer, rather than information, which is the current trend nowadays, thinking in terms of information. Each step as you move from the past to the future is a choice based on a set of rules. Now, out of this, you can immediately get a toy model for morality. If there are future paths, you know, future situations which are more desirable than other future outcomes, then the rule set by which you make your choices from past to future now becomes important. Uh, the rule set starts to, um, because it gives you a directed path. And so the rule set becomes associated with desirable future states of the universe that you wanna attain to. And, Conversely, there might be rule sets which don't lead to good outcomes. You don't want them. The second thing you notice is that rule sets work best if they are reflections of the physics that governs the universe you're in. There's, there's a correlation between rule sets that work effectively um, um, giving you a, a, a good general outcome towards the future. So you get a connection between the physics of the universe, how things work, the rule set, and where you want to go. And most importantly is once you have a, an effective rule set and a, a, a desirable outcome, if the data you're being fed is false, all the best rule sets in the world are going to take you off into some undesirable direction. Now these three things form a trifecta, which is exactly what Jordan Peterson, a lot of his thinking all comes back to. So I don't wanna wander off too far in this because we're getting out of physics, but like I say, once you take computation as fundamental, you immediately get, or can get if you want, a toy model for morality. And- Well, I mean, that's always been his, um... That's always been his argument mm -hmm. that, well, wh wherever choice is concerned, and mm -hmm. it, ap it appears that choice goes pretty far down, wherever choice is concerned, it has to be a choice between what's better and what's not better. Mm -hmm. There's no other choice. Right. Because why would, why would you move towards something if, if it's not better than what you have? You wouldn't. 
choose to move towards mm-hmm. something that's worse than what you have, unless unless there's some sacrifice involved for a greater purpose. Mm-hmm. But then again, purpose comes into it. Mm-hmm. And so regardless of how the universe is made up, there has to be a, an underlying moral mm-hmm. structure because right. once you say better, then, then you have set up a sliding scale of everything, <laughs> right? Right. And, and, and I guess that was Aquinas's argument, um, probably goes back to Plato and everybody else, that, that they recognize that there is this, there is this scale. There's always an ultimate. Mm-hmm. Well, I think people realize it for a long time, but if, if you take computation as fundamental, then all of a sudden now in physics, you can get an ought from an is which, you know, that's what Sam Harris tries to say it's impossible to do. Um, the other thing that this kind of di- thinking in terms of this diagram where you choices you make create a directed path from past to future. Now, think about this in terms of evolution. If evolution is simply a random process, then each point in as you step you know, from past to future, if, if, if it's just a random, who knows where you go? Each branch leads to more branches, leads to even more branches. So random processes, when you think of the possible future outcomes, scale by, by multiplication, two branches, then three branches, and all, now you've got six. Now each one of these leads to four more than any, so that's your combinatoric explosion. And, but if life out of chaos is one possible thread out of countless billions, then how you get there is by making a sequence of choices, which then gives you a directed path to your life. So this is the only way out of the combinatoric explosion is if you have a directed path from past to future governed by a set of rules so that each time you make a choice, again, each time you reach that point where there are multiple paths into the future, which are still consistent with the past history of the universe. So evolution must, if it's gonna happen, be guided by a a sequence of choices guided by a set of rules. Now, I've, I've talked about before, we use the word intelligence often as a noun, but it should be an adverb. We say something is intelligent or displays intelligence if it is a this computation. If we see something doing this choice by rules, that's where we use the word intelligence. So for life to happen, is an intelligent process because it has to happen by a sequence of choices guided by a set of rules. Intelligent design is the only way to happen. The only question is where does the intelligence lie? Is it buried in the laws of nature already or is it coming from some outside um, uh, cosmic power? (laughs) But people who want to debunk intelligent design, I think, are in a, um, not a, it's not a good argument. Conversely, using intelligent design to argue for God 
I think is a weak argument too, because it, anyway, I better stop. <laughs> Just let, let people know that this is what comes out of, of this, this kind of thinking. Well, it sounds as though computation is fundamental in one sense, but it requires a set of rules. Right, so the rules have Computation to Computation can't produce its own rules. No, but people have there now we're back to is math invented or is it discovered? If you say math is discovered, then you're kind of implying that the rule sets are out there floating around and we just run into them. So uh, are we into the, the Plato's realm of the forms you know, what is a chair? Well, maybe a chair is a set of rules by which we decide what it is we're looking at is a chair or not. That could be one way to look at it. Um, uh, a chair in the platonic sense is a list of rules that you go through. Does it have legs? Does it do this? And, and then you have this little chain of decisions at which point um, if you end up at a, a valid stopping state, then what it is you're looking at is a chair. Uh, you know, that's, that's really mysterious. <laughs> that's, uh, I mean, obviously, because people have been thinking about it for thousands of years, but, but you think about a child, even a very young child, can grasp the concept of chair mm -hmm. almost instantaneously. So it's not just... Um, however, however, we have come to that is something we've passed on from generation to generation, obviously, mm -hmm. whatever that set of rules is, but it's also because we are embodied beings. And so, you know, Jordan Peterson is always saying that we know that, that objects are not um, things, that they are they are meaning mm -hmm. they are embodied or manifested meaning so a chair means a place to sit and we we automatically know whatever we're looking at yes i can sit on that if it's a rock that has kind of a smooth surface on the top i can sit on that so for my purposes that's a chair mm -hmm. now if it's a stump and it's too down too low down to the ground it's probably not a chair but if it's at the right height for me i can sit on it it's a chair so it's, it's partly that the objects are vessels of meaning, and it's also partly because I'm an embodied creature, and so my embodiment meets up with that meaning in some way. Um, but there is, there is some sort of a rule set involved with that. Yeah. Very so I think I'm, it's, maybe it's my mathematical background, is that I'm comfortable thinking abstractly in more than one way at a time. Uh, so, so I'm happy to think of a chair as being a set of rules, which leads to a decision tree that has certain endpoints, which are yes, no, and let it go and see the rule set. Or computation is a path in, in choice space from past to future. Uh, there's multiple ways to look at things. Uh, so now we can take a break.
if and start looking at things differently. How are we doing for time? Oh, I think we could go another 20 minutes or so if you're okay. okay. Again, one of the nice things I, it excites me that when I, I take computation as fundamental rather than information, which I say is which, which uh, is current. Again, computation is always a physical object, a system. And so if you're gonna talk about evolution, you can talk about a physical system being able to change itself. Information, where does it exist? Is, is the process of evolution something you can apply to information by itself? So I'm throwing it out there. I've just, I've never heard it discussed. And I'm curious what response will be um, is, is to take computation as fundamental and information as downstream or as an artifact of that. But one of the things that comes up, which really excites me, um, where am I? All right, there we go. Now, if you think in terms of computation, you immediately get languages. Um, this is at the upper screen. This is taken from a screenshot from the Wikipedia page for Chomsky's hierarchy of languages. So if you look at the different kinds of languages that are out there when you walk into the theory of computation, they have regular context-free, uh, context-sensitive and recursively enumerable. They're just funny words. Don't worry too much about it. But corresponding to every language, there is a physical structure, a computational system, which is capable of accepting or recognizing that language. So when you see there's hierarchy is already built into the realm of computation. The simplest forms of computation are finite state machines. Basically, they're a, a computer without a memory. Um, the, the key and lock, the lock mechanism is a perfect example of a finite state autonomous. The universe of its consciousness is the universe of keys. So you can apply the, the term consciousness to a lock as rec keys. It has a way of recognizing the key. That's the extent of its, its universe of awareness. It makes a decision based on the pattern of the key, and it makes a, an output, uh, an effect back on the universe by opening or unlatching or latching a lock. You move up to push down automata. Anyway, that's, don't worry about it, people. The, the point is that languages and computational structures have, uh, there's a correspondence that you can talk about languages as a proxy for machines. Uh, now, getting back to the Landauer's principle when we talked about the Maxwell's demon, what Landauer was saying in some effect is I don't have to worry about what computational structure physically makes the demon in the experiment. All I need to do is go from hardware to software. I can solve the problem just simply in terms of the 
the software side of it issues, and that is perfectly good for the a proof in the laws of physics. So this allows you now to look at problems in terms of language rather than terms of hardware. It frees you up from the specific hardware and think in terms of language. Now, when I was working on my RoboDog and I was sort of, you know, rifting on the conversation with Fields and Friston and, and Levin, about, they use the word cognition. And I was thinking, well, when I do a robot, it's got computer chips, right? But it's got amplifiers, it's got actuators, it's power supplies, it's got transmissions, gears. There's all this stuff going in there. And I was thinking, well, I can't say my robot's doing computation because there's all these other aspects going on as well. So I'm realizing, but finish this thought. But I couldn't think of a good way to separate the word cognition from computation. I, if I'm just looking at the physical hardware, where is that? Where does an amplifier start and a computer computation begin? So I understand when they use the word cognition, a lot of times you'll see that in a lot of the discussions. That that is useful because it's a catch-all. It's an umbrella term that encompasses all the stuff going on at the hardware level, where you can't say, well, that's a computation, that's, forget it. It's all fuzzy. You can't really do it, give up, and just talk about the umbrella term cognition. But what I can do is I can look at what's going on and ask myself, can I describe what I'm seeing my do in this so in my case, it's the context-free language, which seems to be the level at which I can describe all of the, what the hardware is doing. So I say, I don't need to worry about what is a computation, what isn't in terms of the robot. I just say, the language that describes what the robot does is this. So therefore, what must be happening is a computation. So it frees me up by thinking in terms of languages to not have to worry about the hardware happening down at the lower level. So I'm, I'm gonna need to take a deep breath here. Well, okay, so while you're taking a breath, I'm gonna say something. So if the context-free level is the level at which um, you can describe cognition in terms of hardware. Mm -hmm. Earlier when you were talking about Levin and Fields and Friston, I was thinking that um, Fields, I think, says that he can't see any place at which you can distinguish cognition from consciousness. Mm -hmm. That's because of his particular bent of mind. I think the other two like to use the word cognition because they think that there is a distinction between cognition and consciousness. So you could think in terms of a computer or a robot or an AI um, having cognition of some sort without having to think that it has consciousness. 
I think that's the needle they're trying to thread. But if the context free then for you is the place where you can describe hardware accomplishing cognition, then context sensitive seems like that might be the boundary where some sort of consciousness comes into play because that's one of the things about the human mind is how you know our whole salience landscape and our relevance realization and all of that is so context sensitive. Mm-hmm. But you'd be amazed what you can do with regular language alone. So any system that's capable of computation by definition, it has to be conscious, has some form of consciousness. But one of the things that I, I suggested in an email, I'm not sure Michael Levin ever saw it, but because there's different computational structures possible, there's a hierarchy. And so a plant is probably down at the state of a finite state automaton. You could describe what it, the plant's behavior, consciousness using a regular language or a regular grammar. One of the, so I think consciousness goes all the way down to the simplest structure, but consciousness starts at a structure. It's, it's, a, it's an epiphenomenon. It doesn't go all the way down to electrons and protons and atoms. Whatever is conscious, wherever it starts, is a a collective structure, a collective system, a a composite structure. Uh, Well, aren't aren't, uh, electrons composite structures of a sort? uh, I mean, it's made up of all these probabilities. No, I I don't think so. They are a point. (laughs) They are a point structure all the way down, as far as we can tell. But every time they show a picture of it, it's always this fuzzy probability thing. Um, It's not, composite structure is a necessary condition, but it's not sufficient condition. Maybe that's the confusing spot. Computation is a strongly emergent process. So it has to have an underlying composite structure, but not every composite structure is capable of giving rise to strong emergence. Maybe that's the way to think about it. Okay, okay. Does that does that help? Yes, yes. Now, again, you're coming back to um, Wolfram's concept of, of computational irreducibility, that there there are uh, thresholds where what happens at one level is is incapable of explaining what happens at the next level up. So, and that comes, I think, and thinking in terms of language helps that because what you're saying is the rule set that the language, Okay, need to talk. Well, okay, while you're catching your breath, 
what happens at one level is incapable of explaining what happens at the next level up. And that I think is what you always used to use as an ex, uh, a description of that is like a watch. The inside of a watch is very complicated, but the inside of a watch is incapable of explaining how it's going to be used mm -hmm. when it's being used as a watch because the, the, it's being used by a human person who's reading the dials and you know turning the knob and all that kind of thing from the outside. It's in one sense, it's way easier to um, think about how it's going to be used than it is to think about how it's constructed. But also from the inside, it can't explain what's happening at the next level up. So I think right now is a good time to review the concept of computation. And uh, there's two things going on. There's a rule set. And then there's an input stream, which is, okay, you have an alphabet of symbols. Those symbols can be put into strings of sequence of symbols, which form sentences or words, however you want to put it. The set of all the possible words or sentences which are of sequence of symbols, which are valid, recognizable by the computational system based on its rules, becomes the language. And then, so that's, I like the musician example. Um, the sheet music is, is the language. The set of symbols that form all the notes that you see on the sheet music is your alphabet of symbols. The sequence of those symbols are measures of on sheet music are music that you can play. Ones that are playable become valid sentences then the language is all possible set of valid notes or symbols. The musician is the computational system. The musician looks at the sequence of notes, see, you know, one by one on the, on the sheet music. And the rule set is the set of how you turn the symbol on the page into fingering on, on the instrument, whereas the, the frets, and, you know, how you blow at the timber or whatever the, the terms are. So, and then the out, final outcome of that is the music that you hear. So there's, there's two processors, there's the rules, there's the, the computational system, which is again, a, just a machine, a thing that's taking the rules, taking the input, doing whatever is the rules based on the input. And then you get some kind of effect back on the universe based on that. Does, does that make sense? So yeah. when I talk about language, computational system and rules, there's, there's three different things going on. Yes. Okay. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go back into this and transcribe that out so that we have a, uh, a memory of that because I- I'm not the best explainer, so. I'm going to throw myself at the mercy of your listeners to, try <laughs> to do the work to make sense out of this. But, or, or maybe, uh, so what I'm saying, if you think in terms of language, languages rather than computation or rules, what you're saying is the language that describes what's happening at one level 
is incapable of describing what happens at the emergent level above. So I have a, an orchestra of musicians and the language, which is the, the sheet music, the symbols tells each musician what to play and how to play it. Now I put a bunch of musicians together playing a bunch of different instruments. They're each following their own language, but none of those languages can tell you what the symphony is. So the symphony is an emergent or epiphenomena on all of these individual musicians playing in just the right order. And so when you're saying computationally irreducible or strongly emergent, uh, all these words, what you're sensing is that the rules that govern how the musician plays the instrument can't possibly tell you anything about the symphony and how it works. So there's a well, threshold. Isn't, if you boil that right down to the essence, isn't that the same thing as saying that everything is a whole rather than parts? Right, yeah, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. So the language that you need to describe the whole is, is in Chomsky's hierarchy of life, must be something at higher up, the next layer up. And I mean, so the whole thing collapses into Gödel's theorem. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it, it's, it's just really amazing how all these things come to the same point. Yeah, so that's what I was saying. If you start thinking in terms of computation, it just explodes and I can't possibly do more than just give hints as to, to where this kind of thinking takes you. Again, if you look at the diagram, Turing machine is, is the top physically realizable computational structure. You know, they make Turing machines out of Legos, heaven's sakes. <laughs> there are, um, it's called hypercomputation, I think, that there are problems that go beyond Turing machine. And that's a field of research. It's some people call it voodoo because if you get into the languages which are beyond recursively enumerable, there is no physical structure you can make that will recognize those languages. So I don't know, it's, you can go that way. I haven't spent time on it, but it's just one more avenue that opens up in this process. We often think of consciousness as, as a continuum or has something to do with us. But again, if you look at these hierarchy of languages, there's distinct hierarchies, which the languages at one level can't express what the next language level up is. So you could categorize consciousness by where the corresponding computational structure that you're looking at fits in. So there's not just one consciousness, which is what we think of. There's layers, there's actually um, categories of it as you go down. And I think maybe this is one of the things you were referring to at which there's a bottom level at which you can't go lower. Again, I, I think this is unique. I've not heard anyone talk about this on my wanderings on the internet. I think it'd be fun to throw out there and see what kind of seeds this might, this kind of thinking might grow into. Again, well, if, if we take the simplest example here of the finite state automaton with the lock and the key, 
the the lock is making a measurement. Mm -hmm. um, but as Wolfgang Smith points out, it's also not a quantum system. So right. you're still many levels up from a quantum mm -hmm. system. So the question is, how does how do you build a quantum mechanical system which supports a strongly emergent, a causally disconnected computational phenomena that can happen on top, but is, is independent of the quantum mechanics going on underneath. So. Um, well, if you could do that, it still wouldn't be a quantum mechanical system anymore. No, but it, it would be on it top. Would, it, <laughs> it would tell you how to make the observer starting from quantum mechanics alone if you can create a physical, a strictly quantum mechanical system but shows um, a behavior which is strongly emergent on top of that. So therefore, this whole entanglement gets the core part of this, your observer entangles, but there's a part of the observer does not become entangled, it's separate. There's a, a phenomena which is not being entangled with the observer as a whole. Again, I think there's, it's possible. I think it would be intriguing if someone tried it. If I was about 30 years younger and I had my useful brain, I would probably commit myself to trying it. It's intriguing. Um, I think people run away from it, but if you take, replace the anthropic principle with the equivalent observer principle, I think it, Physics has to deal with it. Um, I guess this is a, a good stopping point, or we yeah, can. Yeah, you've certainly brought up some uh, some very important points here. <laughs> uh, there's still some layers that we can still keep going if we wanted to find. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Um, hold, hold back. Yeah, let's do it. Um, at least we've laid the groundwork here, so now we. Now we kind of know where we're headed. <laughs> so hopefully we can, I can tie it back quickly. Now, the question is, can we actually do this? We've talked about the observer as being um, a strongly emergent phenomena on top of a quantum mechanical system. Um, whether we can do it or not, that's a big question. But if we can, then words of life questions become physics questions and then all hell breaks loose. Sorry for the language in terms of philosophy, theology, social sciences, everything goes crazy. And, but the question is, can we do it? Now there are models from the world of computers which give a hint as possibly how this might be done. And one of the, the cool examples that is out there is work done by um, Dave Ackley, who's professor emeritus at um, University of New Mexico. And he started out doing a lot of work with artificial life forms. And then he sort of moved it into using cellular automata as computational um, system. Now, this is a screenshot from his video, which is going to be in the link. And if you're really a, a turbo 
geek, I advise you to listen to it because it's kind of fascinating. His big thing is robust only. He's talking about computer systems which are capable of sustaining damage, uh, dealing with error on a constant basis. And so what he's doing is creating a swarm of cellular automata. In fact, it's called the demon horde sort. <laughs> There's dynamic regulators, these little gray ones that create out of resource cellular automata will create more resource. It will create what they call sorter. So you can almost think of this as a, it's almost a life, it's a, it's a ecosystem of little life forms running around. And the sorters function when they see data, they will do something. Now the sorter, so I'll take one more. The blue in these represent data atoms that are floating that come in from the right side of your screen and go out to the left. And they come in with random values from high to low, there's a certain range. And as they drift across this plane, the little red sorters, you can still see some gray regulators, chips in there. If a sorter encounters data, it will randomly look around itself. And if, if it sees a, uh, empty space to its left, up or down, and it will take the data atom and shift it a few spaces over and up or down. So each time a sorter encounters a data, it moves it to the left and up or down, depending on the value. So as the data shifts across your screen from right to left, they gradually get sorted up and down so that by the time you know, if you started out from zero, you know, random numbers from zero to 100 coming in here, by the time you get to the other side, it will be zero on top and hundreds will be coming out and the whole thing will be sorted. So here's a, an example of a computational process, but it's not doing computation in any normal sense that you've thought about it. So I'm hoping this kind of encourages you to think about ways to do things other than computers. And what he, he points out is the computational systems of this sorter cellular automata, they don't try and solve a problem. They just try and give a little bit better than they get. And by having a swarm of these sorters, okay, I'll get back over here, acting on these data as they come across, they gradually get it all sorted out over here. And then the dynamic regulators, they function to keep the herd sort of, you know, you don't want too many sorters, but you don't want too few either. So there's a little herd regulation going on in this whole process. So can you see kind of a sense of your artificial life acting as a computational system? Um, again, think ant colony. The individual ants have specific functions Together, they create a single entity which is capable of um, computation uh, acting as a, a intelligent agent in its own right. And again, the language that describes how the individual ants work is capable of describing how the ant colony as a whole works. 
again, here's that epiphenomena, which if you think in terms of hardware, it's not always easy to see, but if you think in terms of corresponding languages, I think stands out quite starkly. Now, as you let this simulation go, okay, this is a form of computation. What's amazing about this is you can blow away half of the underlying um, physical structure. I can go in there and imagine these were living systems and I hit it with a blast of x-rays and killed half of the sorters. The sorters will gradually and the regulators will reestablish the pattern. There'll be a, a while where the data gets horribly you know, messed up, but the sorting will gradually reestablish itself as a herd and get back to working as again. And, and you can even rob resources. You can take, you know, start pushing it, squeezing it in. If you start squeezing it too tighter, the, the regulators will start fitting the herd, so to speak, and then the sorting will be a little bit worse, but it'll still work. So here's an example where you have a computational system which is not dependent on the underlying hardware that makes it up. Now this is the simulation, but imagine all of the cells in this were actually computer chips. And this is my, one of my fascinations is indefinitely scalable asynchronous architectures. So this is done in simulation, but you can recreate this whole thing in hardware, which is what his, his if you check his channel now, he's into making, reproducing this in hardware. And it's been a fun kind of, project to watch. Now you're dealing with uh, indefinitely scalable means you have self-assembly. You're looking at a computer which is capable of growing, running while it's growing. It can suffer damage and still keep working. Um, it can reconfigure itself. So this is a whole area of self-assembly, self-organization. The, computers, the computer physical hardware is now capable of changing shape, altering itself in response to how the cellular automata are moving around. So I think this might be a handle, uh, at least a, a hint of how you might do it quantum mechanically, create uh, some kind of computational model which is independent of the underlying hardware, which is what is, is happening here in David Ackley's uh, simulations. Well, so what we have to do for our homework then is watch this demon horde sort video and be prepared for the next round. Okay, so uh, my, my brain is my brain is about at capacity right now, Glenn. So. <laughs> okay, well, one way to understand what David Ackley's done, and this is a science fiction scenario. You'll never do this in real life. There's no reason. But imagine we're going to the stars, if the human race is gonna leave. There, I'm sorry, there is no hyperdrive, there is no you know, warp speed. If we're gonna go, it's gonna to have to go in, in terms of conventional propulsion. We're not gonna send humans, but we're gonna be sending some kind of artificial AI life. Whatever that artificial simulation or is gonna to have to live in a computer. How do you make a computer system that's gonna last for thousands of years? It's gonna to have to be a system which is capable of suffering damage, capable of self-assembly, 
restructuring itself on the fly um, um, and all that, which is exactly what David Ackley is simulation is telling you. So if we're going to the stars, we're going to have to do it how David Ackley does it. So thinking about those terms. I don't know. Okay, that sounds really good. Well, let's uh, let's get together again. This is going to be a part three. Yeah, part three. Let's tie the knot on this. So um, it's been super good talking to you, Glenn. Can can you stop screen share so we can say goodbye in a normal fashion? <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. I'm just kind of That's lost. Okay. So <laughs> it it's been so good to talk with you again today, and. I will put the links again in this video and hopefully I'll find time to put timestamps in here so people can follow along because I know it really helps to have timestamps. Thank okay. you for all the work that you did on this. It's amazing. Oh, we've got to do number three real quick because <laughs> before you before you run out of steam. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm, I, I'm, I, we can figure out a time next week because I'm fairly clear next week. So okay. anything that works for you, just let me know. Okay, cool. Okay, right, sounds thanks. good. Thanks, Glenn. Okay, bye. Bye-bye.